Hello and welcome to the Colts Cover 2 Podcast. I'm Joel A. Erickson. I'm joined as always by Nate Atkins. We are talking about referees. Uh, we will be talking about referees for a little while here. Uh, this is Wednesday, Tuesday night. Jim Irsay, uh said that, or he said that the league has admitted to making at least a mistake on on the calls, um, and he had called for a he called for a, uh, in the two minute drill. Was it two minute? Yes, it was two minute drill. And, you know, in two minutes, he wants inside two minutes. He wants all penalties oh, yeah. reviewed. Yeah, he wants all penalties reviews within two minutes. Any any sort of yeah controversial game swinging type of call, which I that part I think is a little dreamy. But well, in terms of it, we can start there. We can start with the the chances of getting the rules changed. I, I just I just don't see it, and and the reason I don't see it happening is we can get into whether or not it should later, but. Uh, right now, the reason I don't see it happening is, the, to me, the worst pass interference call in the history of the NFL is the New Orleans no call. Yeah. Uh, in the NFC Championship game, just if if you don't remember it, just go back and watch it on YouTube. It's inexplicable that it wasn't called. It's it's a it's a receiver getting erased from the play without while well, the ball is while well, the ball is like right over his head. And he never touches it. Like There's only a Super Bowl on the line. Yeah, like it, it, and 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 that one, as bad as that call was, th- this is why I'm talking about um, bringing that one up. As bad as that call was, all that came out of that, like you said, there was a Super Bowl on the line. The Saints did not go to the Super Bowl because of that call, direct line. Uh, but the hard part is, all that happened was they made pass interference reviewable for a year. They never turn overturned it. If you if you go back and think back to that season, if you were, if you remember watching the NFL that year, they never ever 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 overturned it. It was like it had to be like the most obvious thing in the world. I think the Colts got one overturned, but for the most part, it was like the percentages were insane. And so if if that didn't do it, if something in that high profile when everyone was watching the game with the Super Bowl on the line didn't change it, I don't think. A change seems realistic now, even with an owner calling for it. Yeah, and I mean, just it's just hard to figure out what the next step would be. Just to review every penalty in the final two minutes. I mean, I just don't think the NFL is going to want that for its entertainment product. I don't think the competition committee would want it. Even beyond just the sort of watchability of all those pauses in a game, it's like it's giving free timeouts every time that you do that. And there's situations here where. You, know, you have hurry-up situations, you know, teams without timeouts, either offense or defense. Someone is compromised in those spots. So to to just get a, a review on every penalty, uh, I don't know if that would lead teams to intentionally commit penalties if they don't have timeouts or what that would do. So uh, that it just isn't – it isn't going to go there. It's I mean, it's a constant conversation of, like, how do you make officiating better? And I just feel like it's something we're probably going to talk about in sports for all of time. And – uh, especially if you're, you know, if you're the fan of the team that loses on one of these, and, and then it's front of mind. But um, unfortunately, it's it's just part of the game. It's just one of the obstacles. Now, the the question of should they do something, I think, is is a different one. One of the things I would like to see is something like the NBA does with the last two minutes referee thing. I would love to have that in my inbox. I, I this is an inside this is an inside baseball thing. Um, 
or inside football. But uh, I do think that, like, I specifically uh, missed an opportunity on Sunday. I'm the pool reporter. I said this on the radio the other day, so there's no point in saying in not saying it here. I'm the pool reporter for the for Lucas Oil Stadium for the Colts, and in the moment, um, you know, we're we're trying to finish up some stories that get posted right after. We we I didn't ask for a pool report. Nobody else asked me for a pool report in the press box. That's the other thing. It's not it's not just up to me, but nobody else asked for one. But I did think in hindsight on Monday, I was thinking I wish we had would have asked for a pool report. A pool report essentially is. The refs aren't going to talk to, like, 20 people on the beat. So my job would be I would go down and ask the questions. There are there are things that I would like to have asked in in retrospect and in the moment didn't get it. So I do think that that was one thing. Like, But but if there was a last two minutes, this that's not an issue, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I do think I, I would like to see that at the very least. I would like to see some sort of – you know, final two-minute report on games, every game, uh, just so that we have something from the league on calls. Because that's the thing, is if you don't do the pool report, there's not really any way to get a public comment on the call. I'm not exactly sure how to arrange this logistically as someone who is on the beat trying to get to both a press conference and the locker room. But I think referees should have to do press conferences after every game. I think I, I, I yeah I think I honestly think we I should think have that accountability ultimate. and transparency in it. I think it would change it would add a little bit more I don't know pressure po- proper pressure to some of the calls. It would just it, it would just put them on the same plane as pretty much everyone else who has a role in the game, which is you answer for your performance good and bad. You at least explain the reasoning. It doesn't have to necessarily be you know cast as a witch hunt. Sometimes it could be you know what you're just explaining a certain rule. I mean I've seen there have been moments where games have ended on just something that's a controversial rule, not about whether or not they called it correctly. I saw, you know, just a quick aside, there was a game where the, you know, the Lions lost on that five-second runoff call, you know, rule where they're hurrying up to the line and they, they're running into the end zone. But because uh, they wanted to review a play but then kept it the same, they had to do the runoff and the game was over. Like, that's where I wanted referees to talk. We did the pool report, but it's – I would like them after every game to, to, to be able to answer that. And, and just as an aside, too, you saw Jim Irsay had the tweet about um, he's, you know, he said that the league admitted errors in this, and that's against the rules for a team official to comment on what the league says back to them on these. That, that's got to go. I'm sorry. We need transparency on yeah, I don't, these I don't, calls. I don't think that should be a rule. Like, that's just kind of silly to me. Like, that's why I would – That's a dumb – that's a very dumb rule. My thing with the two-minute report in the NBA is – as a fan, when that comes out, I'm always it kind of makes me more mad if they admit that the call was call was wrong, <laughs> and I agree with it because I'm like, well, you're not going to change it. But at least there is a level of transparency. At least it's like the league saying we are aware of this. It's going to be something like we do we do train our officials. This is something we're admitting. The NFL just loves to sweep things under the rug when the NFL looks bad. So uh, that's one change I would like to see. Yeah, it definitely should not be against the rules for a team official to comment because we ask after controversial calls we did on monday you know are you going to submit this and steichen kind of said maybe he didn't he like hinted because i don't think he i'm not sure exactly what he can say um but when if we asked him about it today he's not gonna be able to say anything because of that rule that's dumb that's like that's that's dumb like 
people are I don't know. It's, it doesn't make any sense. They, like the, the banning the, the team from talking about which calls or whatever is ridiculous. And see, that plays into what I'm saying is that if we have officials answering after every game, they can clear this up. So, like the whole reason. Well, and it also it also sort of eliminates the 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 issue of the, on Sunday where like it's happening at the end of the game and full disclosure there was I don't know if I would have made it anyway because there were elevator issues. Um, but if they're if they're automatically talking, it eliminates some of that too. You you just have a chance to ask them about the call and and just you know one of the things that happens. I think this is true for all reporters, but for I know for you and me is you you finish the game and while you're going down, you know Shane Steichen is talking. Like stuff comes up in your head as you're going down to the game to ask about that you weren't thinking about because the end of the game just happened and. If the refs were just talking after every game, which I think is like that, that is the ultimate is for them to be able to explain their calls like stuff would come up like I I still am not entirely convinced that Kenny Moore and DeForest Buckner didn't intercept their passes. Um, yeah, I so mean, I would like I would have liked something on that. I. It, the, the NFL's catch rule has got to the point where I think I talked about this on the last podcast where I don't feel like I have any sense of what they're looking for or what they're not looking for but i i'm not entirely convinced that they didn't catch those balls yeah it it just would really help to have someone explaining the rule explaining the logic explain all the of that catchable piece like, of of the second call on sunday yeah, i would be very interested in hearing an explanation on like what refs are taught about how to determine whether or not a ball is catchable whether it's uncatchable whether or not um a hold in this case that if they have to make up make sort of an extrapolation of if he's not held he could get to a ball that looks uncatchable i, I would very much i would very much like an explanation of that you know what would really help too is if they could do the press conference before we get a locker room so then when we're asking players about you know whether or not they agreed with calls what they were doing on it you have a frame of reference you could say well the official explained this and have them like, it's just very hard. Like, I had people push back, you know, at the end of the game, and I, I probably could have done a better job of this, but I didn't I didn't get as much into the officiating as far as um, making that the story of the game because, for one, we're writing like crazy up to the deadline, right, when those penalties are happening. So they're, they're there, but it's like, it's like at the very end of our writing process. Uh, but number two, it's just like we don't have – I just don't have that real frame of reference. We know the Colts players are going to be – upset at the penalties we know Darrow Baker Jr. you know he said to you, you were over there uh when he said this but he said he felt they were bad calls and he didn't know what else he could do better like everyone has a certain perspective and we need that referee's perspective who's supposed to be that objective piece between the two teams where it's like uh Rodney Thomas said it the other day like if you're the Browns you you agree with the calls and if you're the Colts you disagree with the call and that's how it goes. So it would be nice to have someone who's supposed to be in the middle of that to at least explain kind of the reasoning, the logic. And then you can co- kind of combine all those pieces together. And then you let the fans decide what they think. But w- without being able to explain what the rules are, I like I, I think the league the league's trying to push officiating out of the dis- the discourse. That's why they you know they don't have transparency on when the calls they miss. They don't want officials or players talking about the calls at all. But what happens is they're going to talk about it anyway when they're heated and they're mad about it. And without an explanation of what the rules are or why they happen, it just, I think, makes it worse in the league anyway. Yeah. Yeah, the 
the lack of transparency on the like the 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 dumb thing is you could do whatever you want to try to keep officiating from being the topic of conversation it's going to be so the right thing to do is like you know people are going to be talking about it put your voice in it that's the correct thing to do yep it's you can either uh control the narrative or let it control you and in this case Everybody's slamming the NFL for uh, the, the officiating NFL's, here. The NFL's real policy is if we just wait long enough, everyone f- will forget. That's pretty much the entire policy is if we wait long enough, everyone will forget. Yeah, and I guess they're right in a sense that, like, at the end of the day, this game's going to go the way that it went. It's going to be a 39-38 final. And, and the, in the grand scheme of – like, Colts fans will remember this and be upset about it. But in the grand scheme of the league, I hate to say it, but it, like, four or five weeks, no one's going to be looking back and saying, you know, what if this outside of Indianapolis, it's just the league does roll on as a, as a certain uh, owner once said. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, the NFL does it, the NFL gets away with it because they can, but I think the experience would be a little bit better. The information, the, certainly our jobs of being able to sort all this out in the heat of the moment, which is my struggle on Sunday when I'm writing a bazillion things and then I'm got a very different story in the locker room than I thought I was going to get after talking to Michael Pittman Jr. It was like it was very hard for me when we did the First Impressions podcast to even really sort all that out uh, because, you know, if we didn't – if we could at least got an explanation from the referees, we'd have perspective here, but we didn't have that. Yeah, that's where I thought – that's where I thought that, you know, we should have gone for a pool report. I'll, I'll take most of it since I'm the pool reporter. It's my first year doing it, um, but I, I should have I thought to ask the refs. Um, moving forward, moving forward, I think that the two things I want to talk about on this, well, three things, three things I want to talk about on this podcast, uh, turnovers, cornerback, defensive tackle. Um, we'll start with the turnovers. Gardner Minshew has now, uh, turned it over eight times in the last two games. We talked on several podcasts, uh, coming out of the Jacksonville game about the fumble issue. Uh, that that historically he does have a, a fumbling issue. The, the stats are now 27 career fumbles and 27 career starts. Um, th- there's some noise in that because he's had probably he's de- had at least a half dozen games that he's entered and played most of the snaps in his career. But if you just take 27 fumbles and 27 career starts, fumbles compared to starts. He has the worst fumble rate. He's tied with Justin Fields and Kyle Allen, I think, for the worst fumble rate of any quarterback in the NFL since 2019, which is when he entered the league. So, like, that's we're, – we're going to have a lot – I'm probably going to have a story later today about what they're trying to do to fix it, ball security, that kind of thing. This this is probably not going away. The The ball security issue is probably not going away. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think the first time we brought it up actually was his first start in Baltimore where he got crushed on that blitz from Kyle Hamilton. The ball flies out, bounces around all around the field, and great plays by Quentin Nelson and Michael Pittman to recover it. But that's sort of the risk because it's, to me, like uh, not all fumbles are created equal, I guess. Like there's like in general, there's a – Joe, you hear that there's sort of a – in all fumbles across the NFL, there's sort of a – it's understood it's a 50-50 proposition of who's going to recover it. There's not really a, a skill to recovering fumbles. And so there could be some luck one way or the other. But 
the type of fumbles I'm seeing from Gardner, you know, the second he gets hit and just how fast that ball flies out, I don't think it's a 50-50 proposition. I think it's it's flirting with a lot of danger here. Um, when it, especially when it flies, if the ball moves backwards behind, like behind where he is, the guys facing that direction are the defense, and that's also where you can get into you know, scoop and score issues. Or on Sunday, what happened is it just landed in the end zone, and a bunch of Browns players jump, you know, were jumping on it. So it, it's dangerous. In, in like the Colts have done, it's especially jarring to me because the Colts have done a very pretty good job of limiting quarterback hits this year. Unlike last year, where it was. They had fumble issues, of course, last year, lots of them. But they also had a ton of quarterback hits. This year, it's the rate that he's fumbling relative to the number of hits he takes that is concerning because you're not going to get every hit off of the quarterback. And so that's they have to find a way to, I don't know, find a way to, to slow that down. I think one of the ways that's going to have to happen, this needs to be the week that they ride Jonathan Taylor even more put the ball in his hands, let him be the guy securing the ball. And uh, I, I think the turnover rate will go down that way. But in general, I think they're in a tough spot with this thing because it's either – what we talked about Gardner Minshew about in the past is that he traditionally doesn't take a lot of chances. You know, he's kind of a low-risk player. I feel like he's taken some more chances the past two weeks. Certainly, I mean, part of it's throwing 55 passes against the Jaguars. This week they were going down the field. Um, they were – aggressively throwing from their own end zone and that's leading to turnovers so it's sort of this balance and I think that's where just some of Gardner's um, just some of the physical limitations will show when he has to extend a play or when he's trying to really like throw on the move throw down the field uh, like against that pick that Denzel Ward had it's this fine balance of just it's a backup quarterback and it's managing the physical limitations of that backup quarterback while trying to create explosive plays and I think the best solution to all of that is, to me, Jonathan Taylor has to bring the explosive plays, and that's a way to both get those in, bring the turnovers down. You said something interesting earlier in a text message conversation. Um, Minshew now has eight turnovers in the last two games. Um, what's what's the most that Matt Ryan had at any point last season over three? Six. That, that was jarring. Um, it was. There's a little noise in that because Matt Ryan – had a pretty lucky rate of having his fumbles recovered. Yes, he was fumbling a lot and got, got him recovered so, a lot, yes. in terms of there were some more fumbles in there, but it was jarring that six was the most he turnovers lost in a three-game stretch. And and just, you know, I mean, the, the, the expectations going into the year change everything, and this is probably something that – this is like a, the best example of it because last year it was get him out of there as soon as you can. Um, this year – there are there are some people who are still saying like he's doing like the quarterback is doing a really good job. It, I mean, I think that illustrates that this has to stop. Like the they the you can't. I mean, he. I don't think it's. There's no way he's gonna turn the ball over four times a game, every week. Yeah. For the rest of the season, that's not. That would be like the worst turnover rate in history. But this it's an issue. It's a problem. It's a big problem. Yeah, I mean, it just undercuts what otherwise was. A pretty awesome day for them offensively, including some moments from Gardner. You know, his two rushing touchdowns. It's interesting. He's the uh, first Colts quarterback in history to have multiple passing touchdowns and rushing touchdowns in a single game, um, which is that random. doesn't surprise. They don't. They haven't really had the the kind of player to do that. But the only player in the NFL that's done that except this for maybe, year, except for maybe Andrew, the only player in the NFL that's done that this year is Lamar Jackson. 
So it is impressive. It's surprising. It's but like it. That's the whole kind of point is you have stats like that. You have they got explosive plays, three different passes of thirty plus yards to three different wide receivers. That was impressive. You saw Jonathan Taylor get going. A lot of the stuff they're doing running the ball is is very impressive. They did they moved the ball like crazy on the number one defense in the NFL, and yet yeah, you can't play man against this this passing. If you play man against Shane Steichen, he'll tear you apart. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I just think like with Jonathan Taylor coming into the fold, getting back to the level he was he he uh, that we normally are used to, there's a lot to like about the skill players in this team. There's a lot to like about the improvement of the offensive line. There's two spots in the team this offense I'm very worried about right now as far as keeping this going and being explosive. And it's it's quarterback and tight end and. Maybe we'll have the tight end discussion another day. But I do think that would be a way to – is they're looking to cut down the turnovers a little bit. They've got to find Gardner. Gardner Minshew has got to find an outlet when he's under pressure, someone to look to, someone – just some of these safer reactions than what's happening, which is either hold the ball and lose it or throw it in, in the ball kind of sails on him, which we've seen a couple – you know, each of the last two weeks – I think having some of that intermediate range with the tight ends would help. And that's one where I think also using Michael Pittman Jr. almost kind of in the form of a tight end uh, as far as short depth of targets and, and being that outlet in the shorter intermediate range, I think can help them too. Well, the hardest part is Gardner Minshew operates best when he's getting the ball out of his hands quickly, making a fast read and getting out the ball out of his hands quickly. But the, the counter to going all into that is that you end up with the quick short passing game that the Colts had last year and we've already seen we we saw in in horrific fashion last year how that eventually ends up hurting you Mm -hmm. we almost saw in Baltimore this year except that Matt Gay kept making 50 plus yard field goals you know like that that's the hard part is that the easy answer here takes away so much from the offense um that's that's the 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 spot that the coaching staff is in now is trying to weigh what Gardner does best, which is throw short and quick versus the need for explosive plays. Yeah, and you're looking at the wide receiver skill sets, and Alec Pierce is a down-the-field guy. Josh Downs right now is doing it all, but we're seeing he can do some of the -the down-the-field explosive stuff. It's things that they saw in his college film that they thought they could extrapolate on, and it's working. Uh, So to to make use of all that, they need to – take some of these chances and they uh you know especially as teams sort of creep in the you know bring safeties in to to handle Zach Moss and Jonathan Taylor you want to be able to make them pay and obviously they can in moments they did with some of those long gains on Sunday but finding a way to do that and not turn the ball over it's like it's just a tricky balance because you want to be explosive as an offense but you can also create explosive plays for the defense if you're going to be is uh, kind of risky and loose as they've been in moments the past two weeks. So um, it's all hard, and that's why I, I just go back to Jonathan Taylor to me is the best mix of ball security and explosiveness, explosive opportunity that they have right now. Moving on to defensive tackle, I don't think we'll spend much time here. Um, ultimately, when you got when we got the snap counts, uh, they were doing the right – well, I think my contention would be you shouldn't play David Bryant at nose tackle at all. Um, but they they did seem to adjust as the game went on, and Johnson played 30, Eric Johnson played thirty two snaps. Um, 
Taven Bryan, I believe, played 19. Um, Johnson is now dealing with an ankle injury. My my understanding is that the initial belief was a high ankle sprain. Um, I don't know what the outlook is for that. We might find out more from Steichen, although I don't. That historically that would not be true. That would not be the case. That we're going to get a lot of information on the injury. They they added Ross Blacklock to the practice squad. The the real answer here is probably McTelvin Agam, who is somebody that most of you probably didn't think about during training camp. Uh, somebody that I thought about a lot because I was trying to figure out the roster spot. They they liked him a lot in training camp. He's been on the practice squad the whole time. I would expect to see him elevated. If it is a high ankle sprain, if Johnson has to miss like a couple of weeks or whatever, I would expect to see him elevated and probably playing that role significantly. Because, as we've said before, you just you can't play Taven Bryan there. No, he's a penetrating three technique that is being asked to play his nose tackle. And if you're going down that road, you know that to me is not that much different than playing Dio Adengbo there. It's it's a pass rush style player who's going to be a team a player that that teams run at because that's the skill set that he has out there. So I do think they could at least it's going to take a rotation here. To the, fill this, the attack front piece of it makes it seem like I think I think you, you, you probably talk yourself into, well, everything we're trying to do is penetration anyway, but the reality is that there's going to be double teams and there's going to be times when you don't penetrate and when you see uh, Taven Bryan get locked on with a block, when you see him get hit with a double team, really bad things happen, and and so as much as it's a penetrating front and you're well, what you're trying to do is get into the backfield in every snap. You still have to be stout enough to hold up um, when you do get blocked. And that's something that Stewart obviously brought. That's something that Johnson had. Brian doesn't really have it. Yeah, for sure. It's like they they, they want to put teams in positions where they're throwing the ball and they're, they're set to take advantage of that. But part of that is getting them to not just run it all the time. And, yeah, there's going to be double teams in that. Maybe they look at, at times going the bare front, which – um, out of the out of the, after the sixty nine yard run, the the yards per carry were not great for Cleveland. But that's also they also lost Jerome Ford at some point, and and they started playing Eric Johnson a lot and, more. After and Kareem that. Hunt is not uh, what Kareem Hunt used to be. Yeah, I think despite it's, his touchdown run, like if you go back and watch those, like I think he averaged like three point something yards carry. He's not what Kareem Hunt used to be. Yeah, I mean he's a third string running back at this point. They lost Nick Chubb, then they lost Jerome Ford, um, so. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, they've got other pieces in the run defense that are obviously very good. We know what DeForest Buckner is. They're setting the edge well with Samson Ebicom and Quiddy Pay, and then Zaire Franklin uh, is kind of a heat-seeking missile against the run, and I, I I think they can play that pretty well. But that nose tackle position, that's I mean, that's the closest point of attack. So they've got to find something there that they can work with. Moving on to cornerback, uh we don't have any definitive timeline on Juju Brents. I believe, though, that you have heard something. Yeah, he's uh, he's going to miss this week against the Saints. That's at least the safest way, safest timeline we can put on it. We'll see beyond that. Uh, could be could be a multi week injury, but I would not expect him um, to play this week at all. He's he hurt his his quad pretty significantly, so I think they're in a spot now where they're having to weigh a few things that are. Tricky. I mean, they have to weigh whether to roll with Daryl Baker Jr., who th- that he played at the end of that game because he was, you know, he was the the next guy up on the active roster. But yeah, he's the one active. Yeah, they, more than anything. They have not. I mean, they moved two rookies above him after he was the starter early in the year. I think he played three snaps after 
week two on defense until he came in on Sunday. So they could they, maybe they roll with that. They could also look to a guy like they just signed Amir Speed, who's a rookie cornerback out of Michigan State. Very tall. Very tall, very fast. Only but 10 snaps My understanding in the NFL. is he doesn't really have a natural cornerback play. I, I came here from covering Michigan State. He was – uh, he was a backup then, and then he started last year. Uh, he's he's not he's raw. He's he's more of a developmental piece, which is why he didn't play for the Patriots. We'll see. They may throw him into the fire. Um, we've asked Gus Bradley. They have Darren Hall on the practice squad right. who has started games. Not uh, his numbers were not great in Atlanta, but he has started games in Atlanta. Yeah, maybe they give a look to him. I mean, we've even we've asked Gus Bradley. Do they look at playing Kenny Moore? Yeah, I want to get. Uh, this is where I want to end the podcast. Just a couple minutes on this because it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like they're going to. They're not inclined to play Kenny Moore more outside when there's three defense when there's five defensive backs on the field. I get wanting to keep Kenny near the line of scrimmage because he does. He actually leads the team in tackles for loss. He's twelfth in the NFL in tackles for loss too. That's. A very impressive number. Uh, I just think if Brent's is out, like, shouldn't it be about getting your best five defensive backs on the field? And Nick Cross is one of those guys. Yeah, and they've said that they they feel like they need to find some role for Nick Cross just to develop him to show that there's a payoff to all the work he's putting in and practice in the film room. Uh, I think they should do it in sets. I do understand why in a majority of snaps they want Kenny in the nickel, partly because he's a big communicator. And when you have guys, if you're going to play a guy like Amir Speed, um, Jalen Jones, who's a seventh-round rookie, it really stresses the the safeties in the nickel corner to kind of set them a little bit more at ease. And so to put Nick Cross in a new position at the nickel, you know, communication is one of those areas he's he's trying to grow at and hasn't, you know, he has, hasn't done it in the NFL. I think that's what makes them nervous. It goes back to kind of what we've seen from the staff. They they like veterans. They really trust sometimes veterans. Sometimes to a fault. To a fault sometimes. Maybe this is to a fault. But I think this is what it is with Kenny is they trust his sort of way he sees the field pre-snap and communication in the nickel. They'd rather live with that in young outside corners than – someone super young in the nickel and, and Kenny on the outside. Yeah. Um, if, if Brent's doesn't miss much time, if Brent's doesn't miss much time, I, I don't think it's as a huge deal. It could be a huge deal this week, though. I mean, Derek Carr has not looked good, but I keep saying this. The Saints receivers are good. Um, yeah. And so uh, that's, that's, the, that's the hard part here is that it might matter more this week. Uh, and uh, if if Brent's does miss significant time, then, then this will be a, a, a maybe a month-long or longer storyline. If it's shorter – it's more of a week thing, but it could matter a lot this week against the Saints. I think that's the thing they're juggling is do you make a move like switching Kenny Moore's position if it's just one game, you know, like, and then move him back? That's the sort of thing where they're trying to build week to week on these young players like Jalen Jones on the outside, and they don't want to mess the system up around those players too much more than than they have to. But but it's tricky because you got to have guys who can do the job and – We've seen Kenny Moore is a base outside corner, certainly played a capable level. They have to prove to us that they have other guys who can do that because so far Daryl Baker Jr. has not done that, and Amir Speed's played 10 steps in the NFL with the Patriots, so the, we don't know what they have. The flip side this week is that the Saints also are, are terrible at protecting Derek Carr. So this, this is a defensive line game. If, if they're gonna win, if they're gonna be good on defense this game, they, they've got to win up front because the Saints the Saints can't protect Derek Carr, and if they can at all, 
I, you'd have to favor Michael Thomas and Chris Olave in that matchup versus the Colts' defensive backs without Juju Brents. Yeah, that's definitely the matchup they've got to win, and that's where you, you do feel good about what the Colts have there because Grover Stewart often will come out on passing downs. Dio Dangbo bounces inside. I thought he had another nice game against the Browns in that role. Quiddy pays back after missing a game. In Need the a little more protocol. from him pass rush-wise. Who's that? Quiddy Pay, like just a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, he missed a week with the concussion protocol. He's back out there, so they need, a, they need an extra step from him. Uh, but, you know, maybe maybe they could work some in some of the Kenny Moore blitzes as well. Shane Steichen is walking in. That's it for the Colts Cover 2 podcast for this week. We'll be back for the first impressions after the Saints. This is Joel Erickson and Nate Atkins.